Good evening, this is Stanford Chidge and the Chelsea Fancast, and tonight we have a very, very special show for you. We've got an interview with Pat Nevin, one of my favourite, favourite Chelsea players, because he's released a book called The Accidental Footballer. So tuck into this for the next couple of hours, because you will love it. But for those of you uh, who have yet to be discovered in the Amazon rainforest, you might not know who Pat Nevin is. Pat Nevin joined Chelsea Football Club in 1983, when they were in the second division as uh, a, a number of other key signings that John Neal made. And he went on to play his way into most Chelsea supporters' hearts of that mid-80s era, uh, playing for us for five years until he left, sadly, in 1988, the year we got relegated by the playoffs. But in between, he dazzled us with his wonderful twinkle-toed feet with some mazy runs and mazy dribbles. Everybody remembers the uh, the Newcastle match where he beat players for fun. And he also created huge amounts of goals for the wonderful Kerry Dixon and David Speedy. But apart from all of that, Pat kind of cut a, a, a niche as as a very different kind of footballer, one who was into music, indie, indie music, and uh, not the traditional type of footballer that you would meet. Uh, and uh, he's always been one of my favourite players as a result. When I first started going to Chelsea, Pat was playing for us and... Uh, and I absolutely loved him and, uh, and, and and for everything that he was about, not just the, the football, which he was brilliant at, but uh, also for what he meant as a, as a, as a human being. And uh, he's just released a book, uh, his autobiography called The Accidental Footballer. And I am delighted to say that uh, we have uh, got him on the Chelsea Fancast for an interview to talk all about his book. So, Pat, uh, a huge, massive, and I have to say, and I, I blame myself for this entirely, a very long overdue welcome to the Chelsea Fancast. Uh, yeah, it's good to be on. Um, I badgered you long enough. <laughs> and I get on. Thank you. If it's only that was true. It was my, me being remiss, Pat. <laughs> but there you go. It's great to have you on. I mean, obviously, there's a very good reason why we've got you on, and... Uh, you know, you've just released a fantastic book, The Accidental Footballer, which, uh, as you know, I, I read most of. And, and I have to say, it's it's a cracking read. Um, and I know this might sound quite trite, but it's because it, it's it's an autobiography. But it, 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 it's so infused with what we all know and love about Pat Nevin. It, it's very classic in that sense. But the first question really is, why now? Because um, it took me ages to get round to it. <laughs> because... <laughs> Um, I've been wanting to write it for a while. I, I'm going to tell you stuff that nobody else knows. Okay, do you mind that? Because it's Chelsea fan cast. No, right? I love that. Stuff that nobody else gets, right? So a couple of things. I've been meaning to do it for a while. And then I had all these stories I wanted to tell. But I was trying to find a structure to do it. Now, as you can probably tell, it's my voice. So I've written every word. Um, and if it's rubbish and it's badly written, I can't blame a ghostwriter. It's my problem, right? So... <laughs> Um, so, but I, I was told to be as I went around and I was picking up all these adventures and stories, particularly post-career, oddly enough. And I was and I was I was picking them all up and I was using them for various things. And people kept on saying, why don't you write a book? And I put it off and I put it off and I put it off because I was working hard doing my other job. And then somebody annoyed me. One day it just annoyed me. And I sat down and started writing before I even got to the airport. And before I knew it, I'd done 120,000 words. And I mean before I knew it. <laughs> it was weeks, just a few weeks. And uh, I thought, I'll tidy this up and see if anyone's interested in it. And took it to the publisher. Because I'd never, you know, I'd, this wasn't the way most books are done, i.e. you get a publisher and you get a deal 
not 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 for me. I wanted control, um, and they kind of liked it. And it's kind of odd though, because I then wrote another one, which is already finished. So part two is finished, right? But now I'm just about to start part three, which was the original idea, which I've not got around to yet. <laughs> so to ask me a question, I had all these stories, but they're all post-career. I've just started writing them now. That'll be that's two books away. <laughs> uh, I mean, it sounds. So, I loved the first one. I loved, loved because I, I had never looked back. I'd never looked back, other than oh, that was quite nice, but never really considered it because you always look ahead if you play football. And see, looking back, honestly, it was a joy. Without because I guilty, I was guilty looking back before this, mm. but it was great fun. It's it, well when you read it and hearing you, you now, it sounds very cathartic. And I, I, I'm, I was particularly enamoured by the reason for the anger about writing it in the first place because it's something that I mean I know I mean you know most people who listen to this show will read your your weekly column uh, for the Chelsea website, but uh, I write a weekly column too, not a patch on yours. I, I hasten to add, but I, I I'm lucky that I get they they my brief is to write what I want. But, you know, I, my brief is to write what I want. And I'm really lucky. And I read that and I thought, oh, God, I, I really know how you feel. That would absolutely drive me up the wall. So fair play to you. And I can add one line to that. Yeah. I love the fact that you said that. <laughs> one, one guy who was interviewing me last week said, I read your prologue about wanting to write and be allowed to write and about, you know, clickbait these days. He said, I punched the air at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of did too, in a way, and I, a lot of simpatico there. Um, I tell you what, another bit of simpatico, and, and, and I've heard you talk about this as well, but I, I absolutely laughed my head off when I when I read the chapter headings, uh, which I immediately, you know, loving my music, immediately grabbed. And, and the other reason I loved it is that in the eight hundred and twenty odd shows that we've done on the Chelsea Fancast since two thousand and eight. I have mercilessly ripped off, uh, uh, you know, titles of, of my some of my favourite music and tracks, and I just thought, I can't believe he's done it in his book. This is brilliant. <laughs> I do it in my commentaries, mate, all the time. <laughs> I'm the hardest one ever. I mean, it's a shame that I'm supposed to try to flog a book. I'm rubbish at it. Okay, <laughs> we got a totally different story. Um, I had to I always get band names, and so if I've got bands that I like. Um, I always get them in, and if they're friends of mine particularly. And there was a band I really liked recently called The Pains of Being Pure at Heart. How do you get that into a commentary on BBC Radio 5 Live? Right? Without anyone noticing yeah. you're doing right? that, that's the Anyone can say anything, but it's without people noticing. Anyway, the next day I was on doing Man City versus Arsenal, and Man City won. And uh, he said, what went wrong with Arsenal? the commentator John Murray and I went well you know you know what Arsene Wenger's like he always wants to play, try and play beautiful football they overpass it they overdo it they never have a shot and target it's just tiresome to watch but that's the way he thinks about it you know he wants the beautiful game and but you won't always win and those are the pains of being pure at heart if you play that way so I managed to get the pains of being pure at heart right at the end so you always get these things in I love doing no, me too. And I mean, Chris Packham was always very famous for getting Clash songs into his uh, his his broadcasting, and I always used to love him for that. But uh, we came up with one the other week uh, when we drew against Leeds, and we'd we'd already done uh, when we beat them three one, dirty Leeds, and they'd done dirt cheap, and we changed that to dirty Leeds and another clean sheet, which oh. I quite liked, you know. Yeah. So there we go. Um, 
I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that really intrigued me, particularly about the, the you know, because I think in the early part of the book, obviously you talk a lot about growing up in Glasgow and, you know, the association with uh, Celtic. And, and, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of the people who listen to the show will, will have met you, will, will know you, will know of you very well. And, and one thing that really comes across, which is absolutely beautiful, is, is, is this kind of really kind of casual and carefree approach to, to life and particularly to football, which is in in a sense what the book's really all about, and I and I just kind of wondered how much the you know the, the grounding you got in your upbringing really helped with that. Well, yeah, it was the reason for it, and it's so complicated because that's why the book's three hundred odd what, uh, pages long, and why you've not been able to finish it because <laughs> I was enjoying it. But it's a complex idea of yeah, you're absolutely right. I was casual about it. I was relaxed. But I was also completely dedicated, probably more than any of the other players, because I was the one that stayed and did extra. I was the one that came in in the afternoons. Nobody else did. Um, so casual sounds like you don't care about it. I cared about doing it well, but I also had it in a perspective where if it finishes tomorrow, it finishes tomorrow. That was nice. You know, that's okay. So I didn't want it to define me. But that sounds awful earnest, that, doesn't it? But well, I'm not I, I was going to say, I was going to say, Pat. I know it's called the accidental footballer, but I, I, I was reading that, and you do mention Ernest a lot. And I was thinking, well, you could have called it the importance of being Ernest, but of course, that's uh, already been done. <laughs> I, to to be fair, that might happen in the next. <laughs> fair enough. I've actually thought of this, and it's you've missed you've missed a word out because there's a word that has to be put in there. It's the importance of not being earnest. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> it's it's a good point, though, and I, I mean, it, 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 you know, you pick it up later in the book, and I mean, there was a sense, isn't there? And I think actually, this is really relevant uh, to to the modern game, really, where where kids are now picked up very, very young. You know, six, seven, eight, they're getting into Premier League clubs, and 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 you know, they, they suddenly. It's the most important thing, and they, they, in a sense, they take it far too seriously. And of course, if if and when they fail, because most do, it, it's very, very crushing, and they're on the scrap heap at a ridiculously young age. And that does come across to you that it was really important to you, but it was not the most important thing. And I, and I and I I think that that in a sense nails it. But I I I love the way that you express that that kind of dichotomy of wanting to play really for the enjoyment and love of the game, which, of course, as we all know, characterised the way you played and we loved you for it. And how do you ally that with working as hard as you clearly did, this great work ethic and that will to win? Yeah, and it sounds as if they're all different things. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> Absolutely, perfectly reasonable for all those things to fit in together. Um, and I was so comfortable with it because it's my, my life view and my attitude is to be incredibly hardworking, but quite relaxed. It's to be absolutely get dedicated, but not allow it to be my entire life. To think it's very important, but it's not as important as all that. It's more important things. Try telling me that football is the most important thing after I hear all those people have died at Hillsborough or Heisel or whatever, you know, no chance. In the middle of a pandemic, no way. I mean, football is important, but come on, it's kicking a ball out. And I know the importance it is to a lot of people. So, you know, so it's, it's, it is important, but there is a scale. Um, and I kind of knew for, for me where it was. I think you're kind of touching on something because I don't, and I hope the book is never preachy because um, I'm not that type. 
Um, but I hope if a message, a couple of messages get across, you know, to people, it's you're allowed to be different. You're allowed to be an outsider. You might succeed. It might be actually okay to do that. And in the midst of it all, you're allowed. You're allowed to fail. You know, but do it by doing your best. If you fail when you've not given your best, then tough luck, mate. You don't blame anyone else. Um, but see if you do fail and you fail doing your best. There's nothing more you can do. You should be absolutely at one with yourself. So there's kind of lots of sort of subtle things through the book saying, look, this is how to survive it a wee bit, you know. And it's not football. It just happens to be set in a football world, in this football scenario. But I'm writing that thinking, there's a lot of people that are going into the workplaces, and they're the one that's the kind of slightly weird outsider. Um, and you need to be able to survive. You need to be able to find a way around it. And in this mo modern world where kids are under such pressure from social media, you know, it's so much conformity. And I'm thinking, when we were growing up, and I know it's the same for you, conformity was like, what? I'm not having that. <laughs> Whereas now, because of homogenization, which was always there, you know, it actually seems more now because you need to, to fit in what is the rigor of the moment. And it's a cry of being individual. It's almost Python-esque. You're all individuals. <laughs> yes, we're all individuals, but you're allowed to be an individual. By the way, see, try to write a book and not quote Python and Douglas Adams every 20 pages. It's absolutely hell for me. I, I totally concur with that. I, I think it's a really good point. I mean, you know, I, 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 I think probably just about a couple of years younger than you. And uh, so, you know, the, the cultural references, you know, I, I really get. And, and I remember, I mean, I, I find it staggering, actually, that, you know, in the 80s, you know, it was really all about non-conforming and being very, very different. And, and, and I think, you know, we all found our own tribe and some of the tribe, I mean, particularly with the indie music scene, something I was very into as well. You know, it was that, that willingness to be different and to not conform that ironically brought us together, but you're right. It's very different from today. And there's that real desire for kids to not be different. I think they, they need, they really need to be together. Why that is, is probably another interview, Pat. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave that one there, but uh, I mean, look, the book's very self-deprecating and, 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 and really engaging. And, um, and I love your point about, um, you know, football being important, but not important. I think, I think Carlo Ancelotti summed it up beautifully a few months back when he said that football is the most important of the least important things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very hard to get it across to people because many times in my career, people have looked at me and I've met John Neal, Ken Bates, Jobstein, and they've looked at me and they've thought, are you taking this seriously? <laughs> you you got the right attitude here. And I'm thinking, why do you not understand I've got as good, if not better attitude than anyone to the actual game? And it's, it's a really tough thing to get across. But I, I think it's easier now in the game to, to be slightly different. I, I used one, I don't know, if, I think I used it in the book where I mentioned Juan Mata. Juan was very much individual with his own personality and his own, own way of living. And I really liked that about Juan. And although people are sort of seemingly having to behave differently now, you don't really. You, you, can, you can actually completely be yourself within the football. Um, so I'm desperate to see that. I've completely forgotten what your question was. Well, it wasn't really a question, which is probably why. <laughs> it was more more just agreeing with you really that you know that football i mean you know as supporters we we you know spend so much of our life 
thinking about it, it affects our mood hugely. I mean, I mean, after the Leicester match, and I mean, maybe this is because the fact that I wasn't there, the cup final, whereas normally as I would be, you know, so after the defeat, you would have gone to the pub, had a few sherbets, you'd have been all right. But I was in a real mood for two or three days. So, you know, I kind of think of myself, well, I should know better, but it's too visceral for that. It affects you. But when the in the wider scheme of things, they're more important things to do. And, you know, my job is a psychotherapist and, 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 and the other job is doing all the football stuff. And actually it's perfect because they are so completely removed from each other that I can lose myself in one and then lose myself in the other. And in a, in a weird sense, that keeps the balance going. And I think, again, what you talk about in the book throughout it is that that real balance. And I, I, I sense that with you, that that was so important to you. Yeah. Why did you feel that originally? Tell me more. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not, if you're not, not careful, to... I'm going to ask you about your childhood. But you've already told me because you've written a book about it. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I, I was. I, I love the fact. And this is actually sounds quite serious the way we're talking about it. Yeah, in the midst of it all, I kind of was hoping everyone was laughing through this as well because there's another kind of story to it where we're all quite different people at different times, aren't we? Yeah. We are different things to different people and ourselves when we're in different moods. You see, you were stinker mood after Leicester game but I mean as I've got older I said the people that I admired I admired them for that their attitudes not for what they've done just usually for their attitudes which is an odd thing I mean I'd, I'd love PG Woodhouse you know because of the kind of attitude he has toward life you know it's um and, and a classic one was I think I might have used a, 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 a kind of version of a uh, a quote by Humphrey Littleton you know which is whilst we strive against the, the difficulties of life and creativeness, uh, never ever forget that we have to hold on with an iron will to the ability to be silly. And I love that. <laughs> you know, you have to remember that. Because, and I said a similar thing, I do a World Service show every Thursday, and massive, gigantic audience, right? But nobody in Britain ever hears it. And I love that concept. I love that concept of doing something nobody knows about. Millions of other people do that. And uh, I was, the girl on it with me is Heather O'Reilly and Manny Jasmine's on it. But Heather, we were chatting about this different attitude towards it. She's very American. John win. It's winning. All that stuff, you know. But she's, I love her. She's great, right? And then she hears my attitudes and she's like, I don't get you, Pat. And, and I was explaining to her about the importance of life. And, and she almost summed it up better than I could with like a half a book. She said, yeah, I suppose you're right. None of us are getting out this alive. <laughs> That's it. You're only here for a while. You've got to have as much joy and give as much joy. And by the way, that's mega important for me. Have as much fun, but give as much joy. Um, and that's, I spent a lifetime trying to do that. And I'm kind of not stopped yet. Um, can, I, can I say one other thing? Is Chelsea fans listening or watching? Um, one of the things that a couple of people have said to me, oh, you see, you played for this love of football and the joy of it, but it couldn't have been like that. This is all you redoing it retro- retrospectively. And I said, go and talk to some Chelsea fans. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly, that was my only answer. Yeah. Just go and talk to them. They were there, ask them. <laughs> and it's, I know, honestly, I've never seen the Chelsea fan who said, yeah, he actually really seemed to be having a bit of fun. <laughs> and I was. 
It, it's so true, and it's a good segue because we should really start talking about Chelsea really badly. I knew this would yes, happen. Yes. I knew this would happen. Get on with it. Get I blame it. myself entirely. I, I tell you what, before you even got there, one of the first things that was it intrigued me, and, and you just dropped it in like a little kind of throwaway line, and it was in 1970 when you, the first football shirt you got was a Chelsea shirt. And I'm thinking... This is a kid whose his family are all died in the wool Celtic. How on earth has he got a Chelsea shirt as his yeah. first shirt? How did that happen? An old blue Chelsea shirt, yeah. you know. And everyone's going, "What?" And I was so I wasn't trying to be different. I just I'd watched the cup final, right. and I'd seen how stylish we are, you know, in Aussie, and and you couldn't. There was a narrative around. It's hard to explain because I'm Scotland, right? So what do we know about Leeds and Chelsea, right? Yeah. It was so obvious who the good guys were. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't wearing white. For a <laughs> they were wearing blue. And it was just the colour. It, it was this, the shorts and the top and the, sh- the socks all together. And I just thought, no, that's just mega. That's just brilliant. Now, in Glasgow, if you wore the top with white shorts and black and red shorts, that, that's the socks. That's not acceptable for me because that's strangers, right? But um, I did take a lot of joy of running about quite clearly in a Chelsea kit. Um, and I loved it. And I, I, didn't, I didn't actually get a number sewn on, which was weird at the time, because when I say sewn on, kids, <laughs> we used to have to make our own and cut them out and get mum to sew them on the back of your shirt. Um, but it's, it's difficult to know which one I would have chosen. Probably would have been nine at the time. I'll be honest with you. Aussie. I think so because he was just such a star, yeah. you know. But I mean, think about it. I'm Scottish. I'm living in Glasgow. We have not seen much of Chelsea. Mm. Just the odd bits here and there, but they were just so far the coolest team. It, it, so it's a weird thing. It's very weird. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I mean, I, I I would have thought you would have chosen Charlie Cook, and the reason I say that is not just obviously because he was Scottish, but. Many of uh, my generation saw you. I mean, you know, I, I was a little bit too young for that that wonderful Kings of the Kings Road team, sadly. But um, my friends who are old enough always say that you were the natural uh, kind of link between, you know, Charlie Cook and then you were the next in line. You really evoked those kind of memories for them when you turned up. Um, and talking of turning up, Pat, when they when we signed you from Clyde. Um, I would, Eventually. Well, exactly, because, I mean, again, you know, the reluctant or the, the accidental footballer again. But how did they – what what didn't come across in the book really was, you know, how, how they discovered you and, 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 and why did you sign for Chelsea, really, and what your first impressions of the club were? Well, this discovery was kind of odd because I was – unlike others, I was trying to not be discovered. Well, exactly, kind of yeah. So, but I was kind of hiding in plain sight, as it were. Because I was playing for Clyde, and then you know you're you're playing the, the backwaters of the third tier of Scottish football, and you're 17, and then I kind of slightly blow up by scoring a whole bunch of goals and getting player of the division, divisional player of the year at 17, which kind of raises a few eyebrows. But I'm still doing my degree, but I then slightly blew it by going over to play in the European Championships with Scotland and Finland. And making the mistake of A, winning and B, getting played in the tournament, thinking, right, okay, this is not, I didn't, I still, this is the madness of it. I didn't think anyone would notice. It's a way over in Finland, <laughs> you know. And of course, the Scottish papers went mental on it. And uh, the scouts had all, scouts find out things. And if you've got a good scouting network, they find out. And Chelsea had been seen quite a few times, unbeknownst to me, 
And then at the end of the first season, he tried to buy me. And I said, uh, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm a bit busy. I'm doing my degree. And it was kind of hard because it was Ian McNeil uh, come up. And they kept an eye on it, you know, for a while. Um, and the, the story in the book gives you exactly the feelings what I was feeling at the time. And I, I hope it sounds logical. It sounds to a lot of people a bit daft. I'll be, I'll grant you that. I will grant you that. <laughs> but uh, it seemed logical to me. Uh, but when they come back in, the chance come back in the next season, and I wanted to go and play the World Youth Championships and miss my final exams, I thought, actually, I'll, I'll do this pure logic. I'll miss my final exams. I'll play in the, the World Championships in Mexico. I'll set all my exams on reset, sign a two-year contract. What's that to lose? If I, if I fail one of those exams, I'm out of the degree. If I pass all six, then I'll just do the two years down at Chelsea. It's a job. And uh, I mean, I'll never get a game for the first team, obviously. Um, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go back after two years. So it's just logic, nothing more than that. And when I went down, it was probably, and there's a lot, I mean, for any Chelsea fans, I hope there's stuff in there you've never heard before about those first training sessions and why it suddenly went really well. Because I don't think I've ever really spoken in much depth about that before. And that, that was me really digging into my memory to what it was really like in those first sessions and that first time. Because, you know, there's, I didn't have any fear because I had nothing to lose because I, the expectations were low and I could go back and finish my degree. So I was under no pressure. Hey, London, two years, get paid a few quid, go see a few gigs and uh, enjoy myself. And I did. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that. And I mean, we touched about the kind of the, the you know, this kind of fairly carefree but steely underbelly attitude. And one of the things that really struck me in the book was the chat that John Neal had with you uh, on the, uh, the, the the first tee at St Andrews, where he he reveals really what made you as you are, I would say, perhaps as a person, let alone as a footballer, but all to do with this confidence that you have. Yeah, but you know, the confidence mostly comes from not taking myself particularly seriously. Um, you know, I, I did when I at Chelsea, I did look quite gloomy sometimes. And I did look very well, that, was all, that was the indie look. Come on, Pat. What is the indie <laughs> look? And I'm thinking, I'm not like that. Like, but, you know, but I was, as I say, I was a bit more earnest now. But what John had figured out quite quickly was that I didn't get nervous. I was never really particularly worried. And you would see everybody else trying to hide their nerves. And I'd be sitting there playing some music, you know, and then take my headphones off. And he'd say, give a bottle of cut <laughs> and you'll win. And I went, yeah, cool. Like 19. <laughs> so it's kind of weird that he, but he took me on the golf courses. And I've never played, I mean, I, I'm at the east end of Glasgow. So you can hit a golf club, usually over someone else's head, but sometimes on a ball too, I'll grant you that. <laughs> And we, uh, I said, yeah, I hit a golf ball, but I'd never played in a golf course. So my first ever shot in a golf course was off the first tee in the old course at St Andrews with John Neal. And I smacked one up the middle, but he'd stood me there for the best part of an hour, watching people tee off and watch them shaking like leaves and explaining to me, you don't know how lucky you are not having nerves because these people, they're great golfers, but they're all duffing it and slicing it and make a mess at some of them are completely missing the ball because nerves can do that to you. And he said, never lose that if you can. You know, that utter belief. And belief was part of it since you're on the, on the pitch. The other part of it was 
I don't care if people laugh at me. I'm laughing first. <laughs> and I'm there before you, Nick, if I do something daft. Uh, hence, having such joy in explaining my missed penalty against Manchester City. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. <coughs> of course, everyone goes, you must be very embarrassed by that. And I used to go, yeah, yeah, it was terrible. They're thinking, I'm going to have to stop lying about this <laughs> after a while because it was funny. And we were 4-1 up with a minute to go. Uh, but there you go. But it, it was interesting to get little insights. Can I, can I give you, again, I want to give you things that people haven't heard. That, and even this isn't in the book either. Um, I went out to see John Neal um, just before he died. And, you know, memory wasn't great. You know, it had dementia, et cetera. And I drove uh, five hours there to see him in North Wales. And he was there with his wife. And uh, he didn't know me. He didn't know. And he was nodding along and I was talking. And I had to do a talk. And his, his wife was, was lovely because he looked very healthy. He looked great, you know. But the memory had gone. The memory had gone. And I, I talked to him about a few things. And there's a couple of things he clicked on. But, you know, the, his memory had almost been wiped. It was, it was kind of desperately sad. But I wanted to see him again because he's been such an important human being in my life. And... Uh, as I walked out, I'd spent about two hours there. And I just, just being in the man's company, you know, whatever we say, just being in his company. And as I walked out, it was honestly spine tingling. So I looked at him and he's looking at me, but he's looking just over the back of my head. And I'm going, What's... and over the back of my head, there's a picture on the wall. And it's me dribbling around somebody, it's framed. And he's looked at me and he's went, we put and just as I'm walking out the door, it clicked in there. And it, honestly, I could I swear to God, I was in the car, there were tears streaming down my face. But for that moment, I'd gone five hours there, five hours back. It was it was hard, by the way, and it wasn't a nice journey. But see those few seconds, they are so worth it and so stuck with me. So anyway, so that's a good digression. John was a very, very important person because he understood. He got it. He got me. He understood that the unusual bits shouldn't actually ignore the fact that, they kept, that you had a hardworking person and you had someone who was dedicated, all that sort of stuff as well. Um, so I, I, I loved that man. He was fabulous. And by the way, hell of a talented because he had good sense. Well, I mean, what a moving story, actually. I mean, that, that remark, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the documentary on Jack, on Jack Charlton. And there's exactly that. I mean, the most moving scene in the film is where he's looking at his laptop, and his his, his memory's completely gone. But he sees that picture of Paul McGrath, and he and he and he just grins. I mean, it's I, spark, I, isn't it? It's just I, you know, I I had tears in my eyes. I I defy anybody not to watch that scene and and, and feel the same. So incredibly moving. And and I mean, John Neal is revered by Chelsea supporters of my generation for obvious reasons. And I think actually what comes through, you know, what comes across in the book very much actually is what we all suspected, which is what an incredibly clever man manager he was, what an incredible psychologist he was, really. The best managers were. And I suppose I gauged them by a tactical acumen, but also their, their managerial intelligence, but emotional intelligence, the intelligence of understanding other people and not spending their whole time thinking about what they thought. Um, and that takes a level of intelligence. 
to spend your time trying to get inside somebody else. I'm, I'm not. I'm not telling you something you don't know here, am I? Really? Let's be fair. If I was any um, good at it, Pat, I'd be a football manager. <laughs> but that. But that's it, isn't it? It's trying to understand. Management is a simple thing. It's the people that are working for you, maximizing the potential out of each one of them under you. That's it. It's not more. That's it. Right. All the else is kind of frippery, right? And the good ones can do that. And I mentioned Jockstein earlier on. He was genius. Mm-hmm. He was a man that Sir Alex Ferguson learned everything off. He was genius, right? There's some nice Jockstein stories in the book as well. Um, but John Neal had that. And he had it in a really, a kind of simple northern way, a kind of a simple good sense. I mean, we've all known people with degrees coming out of their ears who are stupid, <laughs> haven't we? We have, we know them. And we've all known lots of other people who are autodidacts, who have no education, who are Mm. some of the most, the wisest people you've ever met. And wisdom, I think, is the the word that I would. And as the story, again, we don't want to give too many stories away, but the story with John Neal, and Ian McNeil, my dad, (laughs) when I walked in the room, what is going on here? And I hope there's moments like that in the book, which they're almost reveals, aren't they? Yeah. Where, Where you think, how does that work? How does that work? And then suddenly I've deliberately left it that I'll throw in that and then you go, oh, that's how he knew. Because mm-hmm. And then you kind of stick it together. So um, I kind of loved writing like that so that I could bring out the personalities. Hopefully it's generous to the people and honest to the people. But also it makes you think, oh yeah, that made me think of that bit and that bit. So I kind of love that structuring of the, the whole story. Indeed, it, it does very much come across like that. I mean, I, I, one of the things that that intrigued me because I mean, you know, we all we all remember, you know, that eighty three eighty four season. It's it's a it's a hugely uh, cherished season for Chelsea supporters. You know, the fact is that we signed you, Spackers, Eddie Nijveski, Kerry, and Joe McLaughlin that summer, uh, all for under five hundred grand. Completely together, no, all together, together, yeah, together, exactly. Completely changed that team, uh, and that I mean that in itself shows you what a good uh, manager and, uh, and and assistant. What intrigued me uh, was why it took them until the Gillingham League Cup game to give you your debut, whereas the others had all started. Because uh, well, a I was a skinny rake, and I was the youngest, and I was. The- Probably, I would say the least expected to do right. well. That simple. Yeah, because I'm almost half expected. I don't think Ian McNeil felt it or John felt it, but they would have seen my size and thought, well, wait a minute, this is kind of a strong man's game. And he's played in Scotland, but this is a jump up in standard. Um, the, there was also the fact that I went back and done my, my exams. <laughs> so instead of being playing against Derby County when we beat them 5 0. I wasn't available because I'd been doing exams all week back in Glasgow. So I missed the start there. And if the team starts that well, you're not going to yeah. change it, are you? I mean, there was no need to change it. Um, so, you know, I was I was dragged quite quickly into the first, with the first team. And I think the players, there's a story inside the book to, to show you how they set it up to show the players that I was a wee bit okay at certain things. <laughs> Good, ma- good man management by John again, wasn't it? Brilliant man management. And of course, they all just went, ah, what? <laughs> Did you do that? And it was brilliant. And I kind of knew he was doing it. Um, so, but it, I understood. I was, I'll be honest, I was still frustrated already. 
because even though I didn't come down with any expectations, as soon as I started training, I thought, yeah, I can live at this level. This is all right. Um, and then I immediately thought, hey, I wouldn't be in a team. Why am I not playing? Um, and I was, I actually think it was not bad. I don't know how many games, I couldn't tell you right now how many games it was until Gillingham. Um, but it was quite early in the season, wasn't About five it? Five or six, I think. Yeah, five or six games in. And I suppose he, he continually wanted to wait and wait to see if, you know, I looked as if I was going to be able to manage everything he was testing me with. Um, but the team were doing all right, you know, so when he got a chance. And also the other thing is Clive was there, Clive yeah. Walker. And Clive, I think, broken his jaw at some point um, early in the season. So it did leave a wee bit of a gap. And uh, that's what we football players are like. If there's a gap, you go for it. Man. Yeah, absolutely. And you didn't you didn't really look back. I mean, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go and do a forensic kind of analysis of the 83-84 season, much as I'd love to, because we'd be here till next Monday. Um, but I think, uh, you know, one of my abiding kind of Pat Nevin memories from that season really was the was the man the, the legendary Man City away game towards the end of the season, um, where you scored an absolutely superb goal. This is it, it, you could probably sum Pat Nevin at Chelsea up in this one moment. You know, scoring an absolutely brilliant goal, and then wheeling away to celebrate. And then seeing that a load of Chelsea supporters were about to invade the pitch and going, no, 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 stay, stay in the stands, stay in the stands. <laughs> and it was actually, the commentary was brilliant on it because it, it, it picked that up saying, you know, how sensible you were. And then as you're running back, you're talking to the referee, explaining what was going on. That, for me, is Pat Nevin's Chelsea career in a nutshell. And I know what you mean, but the one complete ridiculous corollary of it is the referee... I was running back and the referee came towards me and uh, I went, yeah, yeah. He's going, if you incite the fans again, I'll send you off. <laughs> you thought you were I inciting went, the fans? I went, I was doing exactly the opposite. I was trying to keep them off. I was like, so a hilarious moment. I could have actually been sent off for that moment, even though I was doing all the right things. Um, but it, do you know what's lovely? It's, it's been nice. That moment was quite a big moment in my Chelsea career. and Because it brought, not just me, but it brought us to the public's knowledge that game. There weren't that many live games on at the time. Um, it was a top of the table clash. It was Friday night. It was in BBC One, I think, where I've been. And uh, it was a real announcement because a lot of Chelsea fans that watched us through that season thought, well, we can play a bit and we're doing well and we're an exciting team to watch. But that night, I think Bobby Charlton was doing it as well as he was doing the punditry stuff. That night was a real kind of, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> they might do okay and I, and of course it, the lovely thing is for years I didn't say tell anyone what I did after the game so in the book I explained what happened after that game which more again, importantly in fact <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I go this is the uh, some, see if you speed read the books or listen so from one position I went from that game right and I went to the Hacienda nightclub afterwards Stayed really late and you know got two or three hours sleep, right? And that makes me sound like a raver, right? And it's nothing like that, it's almost exactly the opposite of that. That game was finished. I went to the Hacienda nightclub. This was before Manchester in the rave scene, right? There was nobody in it, there was about 10 people in it, and I just wanted to see the structure and the architecture of the place and listen to the music. And I met some number of people like Penny Wilson, etc., there and got to know them. And then slept in the 
bench in the station uh, before I got the milk train home. And I'm thinking, that is perfectly reasonable behaviour. Right. And I'll grant you, it wasn't. In retrospect, maybe not other players, many other players were doing that. But I felt that was a perfectly reasonable thing to do, to, to go and see this fabulous new place. And I wasn't into nightclubs, but I knew the Hacienda was something special, something different. Um, and it was a mecca for people who loved indie music and factory records. Um, so there was no way I was going to miss it. So what? I'd been in front of about 15 million people the night before, scoring a cracker for Chelsea in a 2-0 win at Main Road. Um, it it kind of it does sound a bit weird, but I thought that was a perfectly reasonable way to spend the rest of the evening. Uh, well, actually, a perfectly reasonable thing for most, um, you know, kind of 19, 20, 21-year-olds to be doing as well. Fans would have done it. Yeah, fans would I would have done, have done it. it. Exactly. Yeah. So I wasn't the weirdo. No. I thought the players were being weird for yes. not realising how important this is. I've got to see the Hacienda before it all happens, right? So I, I get this tag and I'm consistently thinking, no, I still think I'm normal. I'm still getting the tube. I'm the normal one here. And I wasn't trying to be normal. I just wanted to keep being me. And that is what my favourite, one of my favourite parts of the book is. I think you see the whole way through it. I'm not living any really massive fancy down high life. MGB GT car accepted, I'll grant you. <laughs> it was an old classic, you say. Um, but I, I kind of just, I couldn't see any reason to be anything other than just yourself. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's a, it, you know, I, I moved up to London uh, funnily enough, in in the autumn of '84, to go to university, and pretty much ended up hated halls of residence. So, so basically, ended up uh, sleeping on the floor of, of of mates who had also come up to London from Winchester, but they 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 didn't go to university because clearly they weren't clever enough. They were all work- <laughs> they were all working in the film industry, so somebody got it wrong somewhere. Yes. And I, I ended up sleeping on their floor in a flat in Hollywood Road. Oh yeah, and that kind of rekindled the the passion for Chelsea, obviously. And but frankly, Pat, I was much more interested in in gig, going to gigs and that lifestyle. <laughs> so I would turn up to the football as an adjunct to anything else that was going on. I'm a te- I am a terrible Chelsea supporter, basically, which has long been a a, 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 a kind of a, a badge of hilarity with my friends, but. Uh, you know, there was something special about London at that time, if you were into music. And, and I'm really so delighted that you covered this extensively in the book. Um, what I didn't, well, I did know, uh, but I, I kind of, as you do, you've forgotten. Because I, I used to religiously listen to the John Peel show. Mm-hmm. And I remember him talking about, I've got the famous footballer in. And I honestly, hand on heart, didn't realise it was you. So to to, to, re- to read this in the book was just fantastic. But you and Peely got on really, really well, didn't you? And I, we did. it, that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I mean, we met through Bridge News. That's right. <laughs> column in Bridge News, the Chelsea uh, newspaper at the time. Because I wrote a music column for that. And which is, again, slightly odd for a 21-year-old or whatever. Um, but I interviewed John because uh, I wanted to meet him he was my kind of hero and it was just immediately just really comfortable in each other's John was very shy of me actually very shy of everyone mm. he was uncertain uh, and was, most of his life he spent with, with a problem with shyness not a problem but I, I kind of liked that I found it very disarming but we had this thing massively in common which we both did jobs that we deeply loved doing 
but we didn't like anything much other than the actual doing it. So we didn't look like all the other sides of it. The fame side frightened both of us, I think. Um, the celebrity side bored us senseless. Um, the kind of thinking you were something special just because you could do that job. So he was dealing with me. He was a DJ and one of Britain's great, well, I would say greatest, but you know, he was on Radio One. Um, and he'd been it for years and he was at the forefront, but he wasn't a celebrity. I mean, he would take the mick out of himself. And that was, if anyone remembers slightly later in his career, him doing Top of the Pops, honestly, go on YouTube and watch it. They were absolutely ridiculous. He took them, there was one great line, because Russ Abbott had left a, <laughs> released a song. I don't know if anyone remembers Russ Abbott, he had a single, <laughs> and they introduced it. And here's Russ Abbott with his cover of Joy Division's Atmosphere. And of course, it's not a cover of Joy Division's Atmosphere. It's a completely different song called Atmosphere. And he just laughed at it. He, he loved it. But he didn't like the celebrity side of it. And I didn't like the celebrity side of football. Um, I didn't want to do those sort of sides of it. But I loved the actual, and passionately loved the actual art and sport of playing the game. So immediately we were good friends. And the fact of we neither of us took ourselves in any way seriously <laughs> at all. So there was so much in common, um, and I admired him greatly. And the stories we joined continue for the rest of our, his life. You know, we, we stayed friends for all those times, all those years from that first meeting. Mm. And it's funny you should ask about John because I got the FA Cup final. I played him forever against Liverpool, and of course I have to invite John. I'm sure, of course, John's a Liverpool fan. I'm playing forever, so. You know, and that, there's stuff around that, but our friendship kept on going, as I say, to the week before he died. We, we met up and uh, went to his house. That's another very long involved story, which, yeah, that'll be book three. Okay. <laughs> I look forward to that one. I mean, look, it's, it's, you know, it's a really interesting point because, you know, you loved your music. And you were a footballer, and and John loved his football, yeah. and of course he was known for his music. But I I don't think that I mean for me that as I said it makes total sense. I mean historically I think, you know, for some bizarre reason which I've yet to put my there's a book in here I think, but uh, I've never managed to put my finger on why music and football seems to go together. And I mean it's interesting what you were saying about going to the hacienda. You know, we used to go to gigs and football and then a gig, and many of us still. I mean you know people like Mark Worrell. Mark Meehan we often do that we'll go to the football and then we'll go to a gig that night it, it just goes together and I mean Chelsea I mean the number of bands that have been Ch Strummer you know the Ruts Kurt Brandon who's become bizarrely a huge mate of mine because oh. I used to follow them around as Theatre of Hate and Spirit of Destiny yeah. and then I got to meet him because he listened to the Blimmin podcast <laughs> and I did an interview with him, and now he's become a mate. I mean, this is nuts, but the music and football thing, and I think in particular Chelsea and music, has always gone together. I have no idea why, but it fascinates me. It's, it's interesting, by the way, missed out the undertones. So <laughs> I, I know, sorry. Well, and, and about about fifty others, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. Yeah. Um, it's, but it's not. It isn't just Chelsea. I mean, a lot of my friends have are big football fans and. We follow the music as well, bands-wise. I mean, I would argue there is a team that has got more supporters from bands than anyone else, and it's actually Celtic. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just stupid. Although Hibs are quite close. Um, but you wouldn't believe it around the world. You know, some of the biggest bands, they, 
when we speak about it. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. It's not a competition, Pat. I think it's an artistic thing. <laughs> it's an artistic Oddly. thing. I think yeah. you're a Chelsea fan from our era because you kind of love the, the beauty of it. You know, the style. Style style's a better word, actually. Style, isn't it? Because mm. you love the style of it. And styles involved with music and all that sort of stuff as well. And when I say fashion, I don't mean, you know, up to the minute trendy. I mean, cool fashion. You know, so I thought I always thought there was that cool fashionable thing uh, about our tr- fashionable is not the right word. Cool, stylish thing about Chelsea. Stylish is definitely the correct word on that occasion. Um, so yeah, there's a link between them. Funnily enough, um, I I made sometime it's a, a radio show and I, I put together a, a show that manages. It took me years, and I figured out the right way to do musical football in a show. And uh, took it to BBC. Never take it to BBC. <laughs> Don't do that. And it's the only place I could do it because I needed the footage and all the rest of it. Oh my God. But, and it's a shame because it, it would be and is one of my best ever ideals. I, I can't get it off the ground. And it's a shame because the BBC is such a, oh, such a place to, you cannot get anything done. Well, you can if you're a certain type of celebrity, but otherwise it wasn't a thing. So I, I, I gave up on that one. I feel, that, I feel your, was... I feel your pain, Pat. I was a TV yeah. producer for twenty five years, and I never got one program made by the BBC. So, yeah. and, <laughs> and, I, and I, I, honestly, and I worked for the BBC. And I, there's many things I like about the BBC, and like many people, there's a lot of things I'm fed up with them about at the moment. But mm. um, honestly, that's that's torture. But that was the football music, and I'd love to have done it in a, a specific way. But you can't get past, past you know, the, the people, the, the, the layers and layers and layers that you get past. They don't even want to speak to you at a higher level. level. Anyway, there you go. We could, uh, we could, was... we could witter about that for forever. I, I, but I know what you mean. Right, let's get back to Chelsea. I know. Well, I was going to say it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about, <clears throat> excuse me, the writing. You know that that so many other people think that they know what people want, but they're invariably wrong. Well, no, classically, I'm. I get the, you've taken me down a route and I will just tell you, Chris, right, I will always do it. That's one of my my failings, my massive failings. If you go somewhere and something comes into my my mind, I will tell you, right? So, yes, um, two people looked, I only showed this book to two people and, and one went, two of them said they really liked it, right? The second one took it to the marketing department and the marketing department said, well, we just can't see a sales throughput here. <laughs> they didn't say it is or isn't a good book. That had no interest in it whatsoever. And, but the other one said, no, I actually think it's a good book. So we'll back this. And I'm like, well, that's good. That's, I, I think had the other ones then come back and offered me 10 times the money, I wouldn't have went with them because you want to do things for the absolute right reason. So it, it's kind of, there was that that, you're trying to get things out there. It's hard to get things out there sometimes. Um, but one of the hard reasons, one of the reasons why it's hard is because people aren't looking for something that's of a quality. They're looking at something that's a quick sell. And I think that's really sad. And that's TV. I mean, if I hear a, another program called The Great British, whatever, or I'll throw myself off a tall building, honestly. Give us a new idea, for God's sake. They, they there just... are clever people out there who have got intelligent people there are people that have got 
vibrant new ideas stop going down the same road no it's 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 true but i mean interestingly enough that's another point you make in in the book which is which is a wonderful bit of advice for anybody really and i think ironically perhaps comes out of the punk spirit that you and i will know so well which is if you if you believe in yourself and you want to do it enough go and do it don't worry about what other people think you just go and do it and that was i learned that from punk if i'm really honest so that's why i did the book that way from punk yeah yeah i didn't go to a publisher i didn't go to anyone else sat down did it myself yeah. i didn't get a ghostwriter i didn't yeah. do it yourself yeah and if it's good enough tidy it up and then it's worth looking at that's, right. that's it it's nothing more good. it's pure punk ethos yeah. um, and punk's got negative sides it, as it always has as, as every movement has but the punk do it yourself do it yourself thing and that's why i loved it because back in that time again you and i know this you know the, the fanzine culture was huge yeah you know, and it started music and then football took over it a little bit. But I love that do it yourself talking. So that's why, you know, all the people for Chelsea fans, they all knew me because I'd talk to them. I wouldn't, if the, if the big major newspapers wanted to take me, talk to me, I'd be sneaking out the back door. But hopefully I'd then go and speak to the Chelsea fans or a music fans. Um, that, that's just the way we were. I mean, it's probably why I'm you and I, well, certainly me. It's, still skin but you know no no you've got <laughs> you it right both of us <laughs> and, like, and you feel good about yourself hell that's yeah because do what i want and that's the I, thing I'm, I'm looking in the background there by the way i love your uh canners that's canners to be a thing you've got it is. yes and i love your zola one behind um i wasn't great at keeping um all my memorabilia but because i was writing this book i had to go and sort through things and uh I found a lot of stuff I didn't know I had, which I, 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 they've been in boxes for honestly decades. Get not even not man, decades, and uh, it was extraordinary to find some of the stuff. And that shirt that you've got on, I even, I the, the shirt for that first season, I was there eighty two, eighty three. I actually found it with my number seven on. So I, I did keep the original, and it's honestly, it was like, it was like finding the only piece of memorabilia I ever wanted to find. And I found it, the one that was uh, that wore for that season was great. Well, it's it's still my favourite shirt, and 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 Canners has become, again, you know, talk about just peculiar things that happen to one in life, in the in the serendipity of it. Canners has become a huge friend. We got, we kind of got him on the on the fan cast in the early very early days of it. So we're talking about two thousand nine ten, and I hadn't I didn't really know I don't even remember how I got hold of him, but he came on the show, and of course. He, he was just he was nervous as hell yeah and i said look paul you know i've got a lot of emails in and and i really want to talk about what happened in the palace game i don't want to shy away from that and the racism are you okay i, I showed him the notes for the program i said are you okay yeah yeah no problem mate and of course there are a lot of contrite emails that came in from supporters who were there and who should have known better and they felt awful and it was an, an opportunity for them to to apologize and he was just absolutely brilliant didn't hide from any of it we had we, we showed him uh the highlights of the four all against sheffield wednesday <laughs> yeah. 
which he hadn't actually seen, or he claimed he hadn't seen. I don't know if that's true or not. And he just sat there watching it like a little kid. But he's become a... I mean, he came to my to my uh, my wife and I's 25th wedding anniversary a couple of years ago. He's become a real friend. And a, and a sweeter, more lovely bloke. You, as I don't need to tell you this, because you, sure. you know him very well. But he's just delightful. And this T-shirt's brilliant, because, of course, uh, all the funds from the T-shirt go to help Paul out, and he needs it like hell at the moment. So... Anyway, we should talk about Canners because the way you backed him was just, uh, you know, again, I think it, it very much defines you in terms of your Chelsea career as the kind of person you are. And, and I don't think you've ever shied away from that ever since, in fact. No, there, there is, and amongst all, you know, you stand up against the racism stuff that went on, not at Chelsea, but everywhere, you know, but Chelsea at the time had a problem. And I would, I, would, I would never obviously back down. In fact, I couldn't do for where I come from and my background and the way I felt about things. But the thing that missed about it is I knew there were so many great Chelsea fans out there who didn't react like that. And they were all getting tired with this same brush. And I was human about it. Really upset me massively. But also there was my friend getting this. It was gruesomely unfair in itself. So I, I'm kind of hard to get angry. I'm a very hard person to anger. Slow to anger. I mean, if you think about it, people run about kicking me most of the time and I never got angry. So, you know, I'm hard to get angry. But I, I just couldn't, it tipped over. And it was the thing that generally tipped me over. I mean, we've all got our one thing that's a push and bigotry, be it. And again, it's, it's, it happened to be racism. It? it could have been sectarianism. It could have been homophobia, any of them. You know, I don't like any of Just people are people. We should get home and have a nice time. Um, it's not really that complicated, is it? Um, but with Canners, at the time, he was in a difficult position because now you could stand up for yourself more. Culturally, that wasn't possible. Then. He had to quietly deal with it. And that that was even more upsetting that you just had to sit down and take it. So I, I couldn't shut up. So, you know, that it actually wasn't the first time I'd spoken about it. I'd, done music paper interviews and talking about not specific cans, but the racism that I found in society. And I'd been involved in anti-racism stuff when I was in college. So, I mean, it goes back to the late 70s. I was but were you, did stuff. you get involved in the rock against racism stuff? Do you know what? Yes. And I went along a few things and helped participate. And there was, and then it, there was, it started getting towards Red Wedge and things like that. And the problem with that was uh, in most of these things, it can get overtly political, which I'm fine with that because it has to go past the political. I'm fine with that. But you know, when I start realizing I'm standing beside a bunch of people who are virtual, you know, virtue signaling, I just think yeah. I'm in the wrong place, and I do think I'm in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. If I and I, because I know the people and I know it's virtue signaling, and I know that they don't passionately believe in it, I, I my back creeps. So I don't want to be involved in it. So I've got very much a a way. I'm I'm not a tub thumping bandwagoner, um, jumper. I'm somebody who, if I believe in something strongly, and I think I can have a minor effect, have some effect, some positive effect. Oh, you'll hear me. The other the other time you hear me is if you ask me, and I'll just tell you what I think. (laughs) It's okay. And I'll listen to what you think, by the way, which is the bit that always surprises a few people these days. Yeah. I will listen to your point of view. I might be completely different from me, but I will listen to you and I will open my ears and I will take it on board. And I might disagree 
Um, but a lot of the time I'll, I'll, I'll try to understand why you are thinking what you're thinking. Mm. So that, that was my, because I think we're, we're living in a culture now, a cancel culture where I'm not happy with that. It's not acceptable that who, who decides what we are and aren't allowed, aren't allowed to talk about. That's, that, that's not a good thing. Well, considering that, you know, nearly all prejudice is down to a fear of the other. It just shows yeah. you how daft that that attitude is, in a sense. You know, if exactly. we, if we, un- I mean, this is going to sound very hippie and trite, but if we actually worked harder to understand each other's differences, we would probably be better off for it. Anyway. Yes, yes, yes. Lecture over, Pat. Yeah, no, we, and <laughs> the stupid thing is where it's coming from. <laughs> coming from the universities. I know uh, it's crazy, isn't um, it? Anyway, um, listen and learn. Oh, I'm, I promise you I am going to get back to the football. Uh, yes, but, but before I do, uh, one thing that really intrigued I'd heard this from somebody uh, before, a mate of mine happened to know this, but it comes out in the book because you, you, you met, uh, uh, what, I can't remember his name now, but one of the writers for the, a- Adrian Andrew from the NME? Adrian Thrills. Adrian. But um, you, you had a flat in Pimlico. I, I have to ask you this, when and where? Sutherland Street? No! Number forty-four. What's four? Hell um, no. Why do you? I own a flat in Pimlico, twenty-three Sutherland Street. Well, I was in forty-four. So you must have been down the Looper Street end. Yeah, right down the bottom. Yeah. And we were right so, up the top, opposite the White Ferry House. Yeah. So the the thing is, I I started. Uh, it was a year in Ells Court, and my wife winds me up because I pretend to because I come from the rough part of the East End of Glasgow. But I say, oh, yeah, no, I've changed. I really was brought up in Earl's Court. And then, whom do care? And then, of course, it was Kensington. Yeah. <laughs> she, she gets a bit fed up with me. Um, but no, I was still on the street for a, a year and a bit. Uh, I'd, I'd been in a terrible flat in Earl's Court. It was absolutely horrible. Um, but I couldn't afford any more. And then I got a slightly better one, but still a one-bedroom flat in Pimlico. Um, Adrian and I shared. Adrian... One night he would have a sofa, one night I'd have the bed and we'd switch around. Um, <laughs> which sounds really weird for a professional footballer playing in the top league. But that's all I could afford because I wanted to stay in central London. Um, but it was better than, you know, a lot of people had at the time and I didn't bother. And there's some nice stories about that flat in the book. Um, you know, anytime anyone from Scotland that I vaguely knew or even didn't know, but somebody I knew knew arrived at Victoria Station, whatever time at night, it was almost always girls. They would phone me up and say, "Well, no way, it's there." Oh, all right, come here. Uh, and it was like it was. It, it, people would say, "What strange girls coming here?" But no, it wasn't like that. So I'd kind of pick them up and feed them and all the rest of it because you know, I was away from the stream myself once. So you you do that. Um, but it was a, I loved it. It was a nice place. There was a brilliant restaurant. I remember taking my girlfriend up to a restaurant. So if you walk up, sorry. If you don't come from London, tough. Really sorry. <laughs> this so is between walk, me and Pat. You lock you know, If you walk up Sutherland Street all the way to the top, you keep on going and you go the back way up to Sloan Square. Yeah. But halfway up, there's a cafe that all the taxi drivers used to go to. And across the road from that was a really cool restaurant. And I loved that restaurant. I used to take my girlfriend there. I blew it one night because I was sitting in one night. I thought it was doing okay. And in walks, sits right beside us, Brian Ferry. I think. Suddenly I look really ugly here. Suddenly I look seriously uncool here. And he sat right beside us. I think my girlfriend's just going, looking straight at him. I think, 
I'm not really going to get any interest here, am I? Brilliant. There was lots of things. There was story, tiny wee stories like you, you lived through. There was a, a story at the WAG Club. None of these make the book. There no. wasn't space. None of them make the book because there was so much. I, you've asked me a couple of questions here, right? Before we're going to this WAG Club story, which I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> um, I had to take something like 20 to 25,000 words out. There was so much I wanted to cram in. And I've only got to the age of 26 or 27 in this book. But if you keep your eyes open and you see the strangeness and the weirdness of life and you're an outsider inside this sort of life, that's why it's interesting. Because I'm like I'm like the, a fan who's just been thrown in the middle of it going, wow, you do that? You behave like that? You kind of won't get that from other footballers, I don't no, think. Because no. they're inside it and don't see the strangeness of it. Yeah. And so I kind of did. So there was, I mean, so much I wanted to put in, but it's pure space. I had to take 20,000 words out. Yeah. <laughs> so, and one of the ones, one of my favorite ones was, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I was at the Wag Club. Now I'm going to say a guy called Slim Gaylord, who's a great jazz musician. And he used to play to Ronald Reagan in the 1920s, right? So you had to see this guy before he died. And it was brilliant. But I was at the bar with Adrian Jills, who we're talking about known only at the club the lads in the team as adrian don't we all he was only ever known as adrian don't we all right adrian thrills don't we all like <laughs> so, uh, that was class that was colin pates and john bumps and stuff right but i was at this guy and uh guy bumped me and i was standing at the bar gosh bumped me again i said to adrian if he does that again, i'm gonna have a word so he does it again i turn around and it's Mick Jagger. And I went, oh, I can't have a dickhead Mick Jagger. And I said, if he does it again, I'm going to have a word with his mate, tell him. He bumps me again, turns around. Turns around to his mate, David Bowie. Nah, maybe not say a word to Bowie. <laughs> I mean, like, you kind of blown it there. The cool thing about the wag in some of those places was nobody bothered them. I just left them alone. We're at a cool gig. It's all right. We're just normal people having a chat. And that's kind of what I say about your players today. Oh, we can't do anything. Everywhere we go, we've got photographs. Actually, you won't. There are places you can go. If you go to the big, fancy, flashy, look at me places, yes, that will happen. But you can actually go and live quite a normal life if you want. Yeah, no, you're, you're, that's very, that's so London and it's so London of that time. When, yeah. when, when were you in Pimlico? 84? Um, I would think. 84 to 85, 84, 85. Yeah, so you, you did the right thing and cleared off before I got anywhere near it. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I, 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 we had a flat. My first flat was in St. George's Drive in 87. Yeah. And then I moved to Westmoreland Terrace when I'd got married. And then I found out the Small Faces had a flat in Westmoreland Terrace. Pimlico is so cool, Pat. It's no, no, it's not. Yes, it no, is. I, yes, it I is. I moved quickly. I moved quickly. I was up to... South Kent, South Kent beside Gloucester Road for about six months, and then I had to buy a place, and uh, I, I ended up buying a place in Zulu. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I bought a place in Kensington. Um, oh yeah, very nice part of the world, Pat. Uh, but the stupid thing about Kent High Street was, uh, and indeed is, well, it was then. I bought a flat there, and a small flat. By the way, anyone who thinks I'm into small flat, trust me. And it was a real, oh my God, a footballer. There goes the neighbourhood kind of attitude. <laughs> that shows you how different it is now. Totally different. 
Um, but it's not. It's, it's you know, London, I, we're talking about that part of London, West London. I am home when I'm yeah, in West London. Yeah. I absolutely am at home. And considering I'm Scottish, from Glasgow, I live in the Scottish borders. I'm at home. And I've, I've, I love London as a city with a yeah. passion. I love the place and still do. And it's never, ever, ever dulled for me. Nah. And that is, and the only sadness is at the moment, the, the downside is it's not being able to be itself at the moment. Um, but there's a little golden era for, and Londoners will know this, particularly Londoners, the people who live around it. There's a golden era of just about to have, right? And it's going to be short. It's when everything opens up and you're going to get some of the shows and gigs or, you know, certainly the restaurants and all that. But there's no tourists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That old period. And I've been in London. And kind of some weird things have happened. Remember, remember the beast from the east hurricane thing that happened? Yeah. London was basically everywhere was, was shut down. Well, I was stuck in London for four days, and every nobody would come out. And it was kind of like four days, like we're having a year and a bit of that now. But honestly, London was fabulous then because you could go to any show, you could go to everything was available and open. It was a bit cold, but it was available and open. So I, I dearly, dearly love the place. And one of the joys is working with Chelsea TV now, um, and I was working for the BBC. Some of the games I do for them, I find myself in London usually, and it's joyous. Yeah, it gets under your skin, doesn't it? I mean, you know, like you, I kind of, was, I'm not a Londoner, and I and I moved up there, but I, I spent damn near thirty years up there, and it gets well under your skin, and I love it. Uh, as promised, Pat, uh, we're going to talk about football again. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, '84, uh, uh, we we go back into the first division. I just, you know, it comes across in the book really, really well. Um, and for most supporters of that era, you know, that match back at Highbury is, is one that they absolutely cherish. 20,000 Chelsea supporters at Highbury. You know, what, what what are your memories of that? And it's, again, I could have written so much more about a lot of games there, but that one had to be written about. And if it's one of the things that there's a lot, decent amount of football in it, there's not that many at the back of the net, net moments, is there? It's not really that kind of... But that day in the sunshine and our team, Highbury looked beautiful, the pitch was perfect, but our sea of fans behind us there, because we didn't know. We thought maybe enough at that level, but you don't know until you do it. Um, and to go there in Arsenal, we are considered one of the top three or four teams, and to go there and live with them, absolutely, you know, sit, slug it out with them. And it wasn't, the game was a draw, 1-1. Um, but it was so important, unimportant. What is, we can. We, we're there. We're at that level. The fans are going to give us as much help as we need. Because the, the backing we got all the way through the promotion season was absolutely unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It never stopped. Everywhere our fans went, they outsang the opposition. It was mental, right? So I loved all that. So, but we had to find out if we were good enough at this next level, and it was the top level. And then the first game's away, and it's at Arsenal, and they're one of the top teams. And I'm playing against Kenny Sanson, and he's probably the best left back in the world at that point in time, or certainly one of the two or three. And uh, by the end of that game, we we it was one one, and we'd like to have won, but we knew, mm -hmm. and it was uh, that's why it was glorious. 
the fans were there, the numbers were there. It's, there's no other way of putting it. Chelsea are back. And that was it. That's the only way to put it. We're back. And, and to know then that we're back after only one game, because we didn't know really before that, but we knew then after that. So fabulous day. Um, Kerry scores, which is brilliant, which is exactly what you want. Um, I nearly get Kerry another goal with a rising header at the back post where I flicked down for a volley, which would have been one of our great goals together, uh, but it just didn't make it. And, you know, just so many things to remember about that game that as the game, bits of the game wore on, we were pushing them back and pushing them back. And they were like, God, what's going on here? This is just a bunch of amateurs for the division below. We should be hammering them. And they didn't know any of us. I mean, Charlie Nicholas was playing for them. He was really famous. They had me, we had me, like who'd like nobody kind of really knew to the same level. So it was it was fabulous. It was just joyous to play in that, that day in that moment. There were some great games uh, in in that era, and funnily enough, uh, unlike the, the the Arsenal one, they involved lots of goals. I mean, the two that come to mind are the, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, the four all against Wednesday in the Milk Cup, uh, and then later the the full Members Cup, the the, the infamous five four against City. And the thought occurred to me actually, Pat, what what gave you more joy? Was it scoring goals or was it creating goals? Yeah, creating them generally. Yeah, it's, it's kind of easy for me that, and I know it sounds really odd, but if, when you score a goal, it's usually just you're in the end of it. Now, if you score something really special, like uh, I scored a few scoops and things like that in my years and a couple of dribbles, and but that's like they're great because they're creative. But if there's a really if it comes to you and you, you just tap down, <laughs> so that's great. But the real joy for me is the creativity. So if I dummy three players, drag two towards me, see two runners going to the back post and flick it between three people and, you know, play a perfect ball. And I've developed to work this out in my own mind so I can draw all this around and I know exactly what I'm doing. That's a million times better because you've developed a whole scenario around you. You've got a 360 awareness of everything. You're deliberately understanding where the movements of everybody went. It's like chess. You know, it's like a great moving chess. You've done it all, you've filled it all. And you know that Gianfranco, watch Gianfranco playing when he was at his best. I mean, really, that, that was what Gianfranco would do. My best players, my favourite players all do. That's why I love David Silva above just about anyone else in the game. I love David Silva. Because that was, he played football the way I tried to play football. And I could see exactly how his brain was working. And, and it was, he would do same things in games the last 10 years that I would think, I remember exactly doing that. And nobody's noticed why he's doing it. <laughs> I know why he's doing it, because I did exactly that. So, yeah, the creativity and making goals, definitely. And, of course, now people look back and go, well, you scored such and such amount of goals in X amount of games, and they just put you there. That's where you are. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, but that was secondary. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Well, I, I, I'll pick up on, on that in a sec, but, you know, it, it seems pertinent to, to say this now, because, you know... Of all the players I've seen, I mean, you mentioned Franco, who who was superb. I, I, in terms of you and how you played, I think there's more similarities with Eden Hazard. And the reason I say that is because I think in terms of attitude, you two were very similar. He, he, he to me, played with a smile on his face. He just played because he liked to play. I, I, I loved, I don't know if it's true, but I like to think that 
he basically ignored Maurizio Sarri for the entire year he was there. Sarri wanted him to play a certain way. This might sound familiar to you. To yeah. No more than two touches and then pass it to somebody else. And uh, and, sat, and and Hazard basically said, no, no, that's not why I play. I'm just going to play my way. But uh, don't worry, because I'll score lots of goals and create them and then you'll be happy. And and I, that that is redolent of the Pat Nevin that I remember, actually, that you'd play with a smile on your face. You like to beat people. And it was all about the enjoyment and the, and the entertainment, really. Absolutely. And you're right, because that was forefront. Um, but there's two things, maybe. One, wasn't as good as him, which is a particular thing. Second is maybe and the other side of it, the defensive intelligence side of it, I was probably better and more uh, involved and more wanted to be involved. I wanted to cover people. I wanted to help people out. I wanted to be a team player like that as well. So certainly uh, personality-wise, maybe quite close, but I would also say I was probably a harder worker <laughs> than Eden. You know, in training, I love training. I was a fanatical trainer. Yeah, you were, weren't you? And I would come back to every season being completely and utterly and yeah. unbelievable shape. I'd been doing hill running and everything. But that was that's not because I was, you know, a better human being. Just because I happened to love running. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I just got lucky. I was one of these people who loves doing that. Um, the Eden Hazard thing's interesting. I mean, can I underline anyone who's listening, right? I'm not saying I was good as David Silver or you know, Eden Hazard or anyone like that. I'm just saying style-wise, what was closer. And in actual fact, again, you can find it out probably in this book more than anywhere else. I'd never played in the wing before I came to Chelsea anyway, so I didn't, I kind of had to learn how to do it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I'd played out wide a few times, but I was always allowed to, my clay days and before that at Celtic, I was basically allowed to be a 10 most of the time or a nine. So I was either centre forward or off a centre forward. Uh, quite often a midfielder. Um, and then you come to Chelsea and they say, away you go and stand out wide there. <laughs> Why? I want to be central. I want to be given freedom. And of course, for the first two or three seasons, John Neal did. He gave me freedom. He just said, right, okay. I, I understand you know what to do. You know how to defend. You know how to cover. Um, do it. Just, mm-hmm. I'll let you go. There's three of you up there. You know, we had Mickey Thomas or somebody else, usually left midfield, Can or sometimes, Jerry Murphy. Um, they would structurally do work on the left side, but basically they had Canners. They had to carry myself and David. And although they were, they two were absolute strikers and one-off strikers, I had, I basically was allowed to go and create. And, you know, the, all the best stuff in my career came when I had the manager who said, you know what, trust you. You know what you're doing. A, create, and B, when you need to defend, get back there and, and do it right. And that's the one, that's the best people I worked under. Um, and that strikes me more like uh, a wee bit more like Silva, but pure for styles. For style-wise, it was more like Silva. And early in my career, it was more like Eden, lots of dribbles. Um, but it's hard when you've got three and four just when it hit you all the time. What you ended up doing is a more drag three or four people. I watched Eden got brilliant at it in the end. For us, drag three or four people towards you and pretend you're going to get caught and then skip something through. Suddenly, you've taken four people out of the game. You didn't actually need to dribble by them. <laughs> you just draw them and pull them. So Eden got very, very good at that as well. So there, there was method, if you like, in the madness, and it, it wasn't. It was. I mean, because I mean, in the book, you alluded to it as, as, as high dad and playtime. Yeah, that's different. That's different. That's a different story. The, once per game, I'm allowed just to be really, really indulgent, and stupid, right? 
just give me the ball. I'm going to do something daft now. Yeah. And it would be beat three or four players and go back towards the goal and do a scoop over somebody's head or do an outrageous piece of skill in the middle of it. And that was high dad. That was because my dad was at the game and I couldn't get a chance to see him. So if I'd done something like that, I, at the end of it, I'd turn around and go, oh, we look up to the stand. And maybe people in the stand think, would think, what's he looking at us for? I was just saying, hi, dad. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you, so, something that I will, I will never... And even at the time when I was fit enough, would never be able to understand. It would be the joy of of beating several players in a in a wonderful mazy run. Um, I just was rubbish at football, bless my heart. But uh, I, and I, so I can't really understand what it must be like to to have that amount of talent just to be able to beat players for fun. When we watched you, it looked as though that's what you did. You were beating them for fun. I think it's an, it's an old cliche, but there seemed to be some truth in that. Oh, yeah. No, there is. Absolutely. Um, there's a guy I watched recently, um, and I'm gutted because he's injured now, uh, the boy Essie. Mm. Right. So up until last week, he's probably the best in the UK at going by the first and second man, right? He just does it. Now, I'm not saying he's the best player and the most skillful, but I'm saying to actually beat people with pure skill. And he does this thing, and it's, it's again, it's remembering now and again something comes in, and you go, I know exactly where you are there. Because he's, you know, in, in any Chelsea fan of a modern era will remember this as well. Ball comes to Eden, right? The guy comes around towards him. The guy's about three yards away from Eden, and Eden's thinking, right, how am I going to beat the second one? Because he's done, he's gone. He's not reached me the net, but I've done him. Because you know you've done him even long before he's reached you, right? Because you have manipulated your body shape, his angle of approach, it's just you've known how to do it, right? And as he does it quite a lot, he's been the first man long before he comes and he's already going, right, where's the next one? And I've seen that. And I, that was one of my favourite moments that I used to love of guy running in and I'm thinking, right, he's done, who's, who's next? <laughs> and he's trying to explain it and it sounds terribly arrogant, doesn't it? It's not. It's a. I've beaten him. How do I beat him in such a way that I now put the next guy on the wrong foot or out of balance, etc.? And how do I try and throw my body a certain way to do that? And when you're in that vogue, when you're in that moment, that is that is a fabulously beautiful place to be. Mm. I promise you, the world is in slow motion. Mm. It's like people say about car crashes in slow motion and things like that. When you're in that moment, it's so fabulously slow, mo slow motion. Because you think, oh, that's fun. He's done. And then I know what I'm going to do the next one. And by the way, they're all coming in here. And the ball I'm going to play is 30 yards over there because Kerry's free. <laughs> and I'm doing all this. And it's a lovely And you can't be in those moments all the time. Although I suspect Kevin De Bruyne probably almost is. But it's a beautiful, fabulous, wonderful place to be. And I love it. And I see... When I see anybody, I'm hopefully I'm generous enough in spirit that when I see somebody else doing it, I don't. I, there's no jealousy. There's just there's a big smile, a big grin of, good on you, mate. I bet you're loving that right now. Well, I mean, people can't see this, but I can, and the smile on your face as you were talking about that just says it all. It's just that pure joy, and I think you know that as, as supporters when we see a player do something that's brilliant that we that we could never do it, it, that why is it that players like you 
Hazard, except De Bruyne, it doesn't matter. You know, when you get the ball, everybody gets up out of their seat. That's why. It's just, it's almost indescribable. Um, so just to recap, Pat, you know, we're really, you know, 83, 84, we go up. 84, 85, we finish six. 85, 86, we're doing okay. Um, you know, there was, I, I mean, you know, the, there's a chance, I think, that we you could say that we were in, in, in with a chance of winning the title. Yeah, We've got this great side with some great players. Kerry's banging goals in for fun. Speedo's banging goals in for fun. You're creating goals and scoring goals. We've got we've got Bummers still there. Colin Pates. We've got some great players playing great football, and then it all goes pear shaped in in a way that it only can at Chelsea. Is it is it really as simple as as John as John Neil leaving? Is it? to do with the fact that we, we just didn't have the depth of squad? I mean, I know these it's things are hard to put one, one thing, isn't it? It's all those things. And to be honest, I wouldn't have given you a simple binary, yes, no, this is the answer. And that's I didn't do that. I made no attempt to do that in the book. Um, uh, some of the things that I found out were wrong, I only found out by looking back. Mm. So at the time, I thought I knew it was wrong. But remember, I'm seeing it through only my own eyes. Happily, with a bit of age and experience, you realise that, okay, there were other eyes there that can be looked at. Um, certainly, the change in style of the team was disastrous. Well, why did they do that? Because I, this, I mean, even I mean, I was there and I read the book, and, and it really goes into this brilliantly. And I come away thinking, why would why would you do that? It just doesn't make any sense. Sorry, was that me that said that, or you? No, well, no, no, no. Well, <laughs> exactly. you might, you might have well have said it, but I, I it look did. at it, how you know you play brilliant football. You've got all the right. It's a bit like saying to this current team, who are all you know really good at what they do, uh, exactly the same. Now we just want you to play long. I mean, long ball to Werner or Pulisic. Yeah. I mean, it's just insanity. Why would anybody do that? I, it's my analogy. I could. There's a million analogies out there. It's like buying a beautiful old classic car that's buffed up to perfection, right? An old MGBG, your old Mercedes, right? And then taking it out on a mud drive around the worst hills and divots and potholes and you know, <laughs> why are you doing that? It just doesn't suit. It's not right. It's not the right place. Um, but that was, there was a style where people have to understand it. English football's history is long ball. And certainly there are a lot of coaches and there were a lot of coaches that were very direct. And we went far too direct. And I say we, some of us didn't. Some of us, I like Eden Hazard, went, get lost. I'm not doing that. I'm doing my thing. Um, and that, I suppose, but we didn't have the right players to play that different system. Um, John Neal, it's fun. Do you know one of the people that this become was happiest to write about was John Holland. Mm. Really happiest to write about. Because Holly got a lot of stick at the time because he was the manager that was charged when that happened. Uh, he wasn't, it's a shame though, because he was a decent enough coach himself. But he allowed the other guys, the assistant coach, to do his assistants. And I'm going, what are you letting Ernie Wally do this for? <laughs> He's just the worst of, for that style. Because I didn't like that style. I'm biased. I didn't like that style. I actually liked the, gla- the guy, but I didn't like the style. But um, Holly, I wanted to give him his due because Holly had lots of size to him. And there was a lot of bad feeling towards a guy who was a historical figure in the club. And I didn't, I wanted people to understand it. It wasn't black and white. It was, I'd rather they'd have done something else. And eventually they got rid of the, the assistant coach and before they get rid of John, as I remember it, to give him a chance to 
do it another way, but it left it too late and then the feeling had, had got really bad. So there was a tactical side that was a mess. Remember, Ian McNeil was not providing the players anymore because, you know, John Neil and Ian have been sidestepped and John was there to be helped, but, you know, every manager comes in just wants to do his own way. They all do. You know, that's just the way it is. Um, I didn't understand that at the time, but I do now. Um, it wouldn't have been me. I would have, I'd use anybody's help because I'm not trying to make a big name for myself, but that's me. Um, so there was a whole, there was also a lot of other things. Bad luck, man. Bad. I, I would say up there, the most important things that happened was goalkeeper. Yeah. Goalkeeper. Eddie getting injured. It was unbelievable. And I don't know if anyone, if, if you have a chance, anyone, if you're watching, you're, you're listening, you're thinking about the season we eventually went down. We were actually doing okay up until the November. We were doing really well. Have a look at the league table end of that season. It is bizarre. It is utterly bizarre. Right, first of all, we're fourth bottom, right? So we shouldn't get down anyway, right? We're miles away from third bottom. So even though we've had a terrible season, apparently, and we had a terrible run in it, we're still miles away from what should be relegation. Then you have a look at the goals we've scored, and you think, we're about fourth or fifth top goal scorers in the league. I don't know what it is. It's something like that. It's utterly, completely stupid. And we weren't brilliant, but we were a good team still. And then that is, honestly, of all relegations I've ever seen, it was the daftest. You'd, it, it almost feels you'd need to try hard to get relegated with that team. It was that stupid. And that was what was most upsetting. And it was so upsetting for me because you come back to all the stories in this book, um, I get a chance to explain in detail the true story of why I left the club. And I never get a chance to at the time. Um, and it hurt not getting a chance to at the time. You know, I always worried that I would upset, Chelsea fans would have been upset with me. They never seemed to be, to be honest. They never were. Um, but I was worried in case they would be because I was never going to abuse the club in the press or anything like that. And one of the joys of writing this was getting that story out in precisely my own words. Yeah, it was it was really lovely to read that, actually, I have to say. And I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of time has passed since then. And, you know, a lot of books have been written and we kind of do a good job in getting kind of to the nub of that. But to hear it from you was lovely. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I've shed a tear twice about players leaving Chelsea and one was Ray Wilkins and the other was you. Because it meant a lot. Because you know you were a very special player for Chelsea, not 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 just in how you played, but but you as a person. I think so. We were gutted and yes, angry <laughs> because that that kind of comes with loss, doesn't it, Pat? Yeah. But and I the think... thing is, if you know, you know that the reason why I couldn't say anything yeah. was not selfish. The reason was I am not going to badmouth my club. Yeah, yeah. Even no. when I'm even when I'm not being treated particularly well, I will not bad mouth them because I don't want you walking in to work tomorrow saying that old player of yours playing Evans slaughtering your club. That will never happen. Yeah. No chance. No, in, in, indeed. And I mean, you know, I don't think that would have would have happened with you. I think people people knew what you were about. And I, I mean actually there are two things, just to kind of to close this up in a sense, but uh there are two things that really again uh which is so so classic Pat Nevin. No, nobody else, I don't think, would have done this. The first was uh, 
what you did for John McNaught's family. I mean, John McNaught, for those that remember him, his kind of short, slightly esoteric career for Chelsea, but, yeah. you know, an absolute... I have a mate who who got to know him quite well, actually, and, and also liked to drink. And I think he was in the players' bar with him at, the, at a United away game, and, and it tells a very funny story about that. He ended up on the pitch. I'll say no more than that. Um, but John McNaught was a character and very tragically died. But what you did for his family really touched me. If you'd like to, if you could, if you don't, if you yeah, want to tell, no, you don't have not, to because it's in the book. No, but you know, no, happy, no, happy days. Now and again, you find yourself in a position. These strange things about myself, like so, he's not that into football kind of people would think. Uh, yeah, but I did take a video copy of every game we'd got and edited them down myself with an editing machine that I'd actually built myself together. So that's not somebody who's not interested. That's somebody who wants to learn the game and know the game and what it's good at and what it isn't good at and how to learn. So I did that. But what I did is I used to splice the goals together. This was before Chelsea used to make videos. So I've got all these old videos of spliced stuff together. And anyway, I found out when John died many years later, somebody had said to me, his kids never found out. Uh, he'd been told to play for Chelsea, but there's no footage or anything like that. And I went... Yes, there is. <laughs> I've got some. And he I'd, it was just a friend. It was actually a journalist that said it to me. So I went back home and uh, got all the videos out and threw them all and edited together, which, by the way, that might sound easy these days in digital era. It's not when you're talking videotape, trust me. <laughs> videotape to videotape. I, I went there. I, I tried to make it as beautiful as I possibly could. And as John's didn't score that many goals, so it was two against QPR and other stuff, and I put together a, a piece, a, a run, a, sh a short run of his best stuff, edited it, and then found out where his wife lived, and just drove up uh, to the east end of Glasgow. And much to my amazement, she lived the next street from where I was brought up as a kid. The next street, the next set of tenements. And I just went and I knocked the door and said, uh, "I don't know if you remember me, but I've got something for you for the kids," and gave them video. And uh, she was a bit confused. <laughs> by this time, I was by this time I was quite a lot in the telly in Scotland, so she probably did know exactly who I was. I said, "It's John stuff. Uh, I hope you like it." And she would like me, and I went, oh, "Actually, no, I've got stuff to do." So just gave it. Up. I had a wee chat inside for a wee while, but I, I want. I knew she wanted to watch the video, <laughs> so I just back on. Show it to the kids. It's about you too. And I said. I know, it was, it was kind of a nice thing to do, but I was kind of, I liked John uh, because no one was more unlike me than John, maybe, at the club, in terms of we were, we were born in the same area, but his direction was that way to the far one side, and mine was in another direction, and then we met up wildly at Chelsea, and we weren't the best mates in the world, we, we got on perfectly well, but honestly, I could have sat and watched them all day long. It's a bit like um, if any Chelsea fans, you know, Erin with the women's team, you hear her talking and hear her speaking. John was like that with a drink, <laughs> <laughs> just completely out there. And I loved it. I loved, 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 loved that personality. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's quite a few stories about John in it, which is really weird when you think about it because there's lots of guys I've played with, there's hardly a story in there. Most of them had to be, I just didn't have space for them all. Mm -hmm. but I, I, and John wasn't the most important player in that either. But I kind of loved 
talking about them and writing about them. It's great characters. I'm glad to say, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that you, you've actually got a picture in the book of the, f- the famous picture of the dog yes. on the pitch. Uh, yes, the dog in the pitch of Manchester United and it's, mm. it's Big Nugget. Uh, yeah. I called him Nugget. Nugget was his nickname. John McNaught laughing his head off at this wee doggy in the pitch at Old Trafford. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. brilliant. And the thing is, it is a, such a fabulous picture. I remember seeing it thinking, I don't know if it'll ever become one of the iconic pictures of history of Chelsea Football Club. But I just so loved it. And I tell you, there's a wee doggy thing about it, because I, I like dogs. I quite like dogs. And there's my dog's probably the biggest star of the book after my dad. <laughs> there are some great stories about your dog, Shandy. Um, another thing that really caught my attention, which I didn't know about, obviously, uh, you know, towards the end of uh, your Chelsea career, was when you you actually stood in the shed end for the uh, the three all <laughs> against Liverpool. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a fun. Those, I'll be honest. Can I tell you? I've, I can never answer. It question straight can I? i'm really sorry but that's why i love talking to you pat that's the point but i always give you a context of it right you asked me about why i wrote the book and how i wrote the book right i'd i'd been thinking of structure for the book right so let's not go down a boring yes i know i studied english and all that sort of stuff but let's not go down there but i couldn't find the exact structure that i wanted for the book to work because as you can tell i'm i'm a celt and we tell a story and then we go off at some mad tangent and then come back on again, right? <laughs> and it's that's difficult to write. Writing that's hard because you have to tie everything. And that's actually very time consuming. Mm. And also it's kind of a bit wearing to read it sometimes, you know, because you really need to have to be thinking, you know, all the time. And then I, re- I read a book um, about uh, two, three years ago, four years ago, um, Adam Kay's book, um, I don't know if you've read it, and it's called that this is going to hurt. And now it's a bestseller. And I, I, I urge you, if you've not read it, um, buy my book, then buy his. Okay. <laughs> no, don't worry. Plenty of people have bought Adam Kay's book, right? Because it's the funniest book I've read since Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? But, and it's been a top bestseller for about four years now. It's always in the charts, right? But it's brilliantly funny. Um, but he came up with this concept, this method, and he uses notes. Now, you'll have seen this. The notes in my book are quite long, aren't they? And they're a way of you jumping outside the story and jumping back to the narrative again. So that's exactly what I did there. I, I found a methodology of doing this. Now we ask the question again, <laughs> which you've now forgotten. Oh, I've completely forgotten the question now. Oh, no, 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 I haven't. I haven't. But you're right, actually. I was, it really, do you know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. It really made me chuckle because... Sadly, most of my time these days, uh, as you can see, I spent reading unbelievably madly clinical psychotherapy books. And of course, their their favourite device is is reams and reams and reams of footnotes. And here am I reading a, a book about a football hero of mine. And what do I get? Reams and reams and footnotes. But actually, in your context, it works beautifully because it does exactly as you say. It allows you to go off on these tangents and provide more context and yeah, you're absolutely right i wish you could remember the original because there's a reason for doing that no the shed standing in the shed oh, end in the liverpool so, match all right so i so i was when i was reading that book i thought do you know what i don't have to tell the world how complicated everything is and everyone is <laughs> it can be a laugh because adam's book apart from giving us a structure which you kind of sneer at a wee bit in writing because you're supposed to be able to write it all together but Adam's book, they give us a wee help with the structure. 
because I thought, that's it, that's the way. But also, Adam's books about people dying in hospital, but it's still funny. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, this is serious football, but it was still funny. Mm -hmm. And I loved the fun of little stories like that, where I could go at the end of the season, I got myself injured. How I got myself injured is funny and stupid in itself. And then what do I do? It, nothing would have changed my mind. I'm only going to stand in a shed. Of course, that's where I'm going to stand. I'm not going to sit up with a, everyone else with suits on. I'm not, I have no interest in that. So I walked into the shed, you know, 10 minutes before kickoff, playing Liverpool, last game of the season. Um, and Speedy and I, who didn't get on particularly well, uh, as the book shows. <laughs> and I'm in the middle there, and I'm standing as the player of the year the year before, and having been player of the year twice, leaning on a banister. <laughs> No one says hello. <laughs> a single did, did they not recognise you, Pat? No, they didn't. Because I'm standing there, I've got, I've got a jacket on, but I'm not hiding. And I, I, there were four or five people all going, hey. No. No, I can't do it. No, it's not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's another one of those Pat clones. Because there were a few yeah. Pat clones around at the time, right? And a, a guy wrote to me just the other day there and sent me a message on um, Twitter or something. And he said, could remember going into a hairdresser's a program, a Chelsea program, opening a page where I was on, said, I want that haircut. <laughs> and we've all done that. He went, so there were people. So I think people were just, oh, he looks really quite like Pat. And then just, so I never spoke to one person throughout the entire game. But the hilarious part is I'm singing There Was Only One David Speedy. And the week before, we're shouting, bawling, and screaming at each other, <laughs> fed up with each other. But, you know, at that point in time, I've got to be a Chelsea fan. Yeah. I'm, I love the fact that you were singing. That that, that really tickled me, actually. But, oh, yeah. You know, I think it's something that more footballers should do, actually. And that's, that's that, you know, that, you know, in a more kind of philosophical bent, I just thought, well, that's that's how it should be. You know, they need to they need to know what it's like. And I wonder how many of them do these. Do I mean, no, we love footballers that come from the terraces and play for us. That's the nirvana, isn't it? Exactly. And I, you know, I... I've seen it once or twice, Sky will pick out somebody who's gone and sat in there. And of course, there's a difference between doing it through virtue signaling so that the cameras can catch mm. you and doing it because you want to be in there. Um, can I give you just a, a story from part two? Yeah, go on. To, to make life, <laughs> to help you out of this spot you're in just now, or we're in just now, right? <laughs> and there's a reason for this, right? There's a reason for this. I'll tell it now, but... Um, I, I played with Everton for four and a bit years, right? And then I finished playing with them and I signed the story I signed for Tramia. Like the story about Tramia is in the book, which I think you'll like, okay? I really do. Uh, so, but about four months, three months into my Tramia career, Chelsea come to play against Everton at Goodison. And I'm, well, I'm going because I was, well, because of two clubs that I love. And I'm walking up towards the ground. And in those days, if people remember, you can pay in. And I've not decided what end I'm going in yet <laughs> as I walk up towards the ground. <laughs> and I'd say, I woke up and I, and there wasn't a choice. I know I'd left Everton only a few months before, but it was Chelsea. So I played for Everton for four years. All my mates are still playing for Everton. But I'm still going in Chelsea, because I'm Chelsea, right? So I go in and I sat down. I just don't want to be noticed by anyone. And as I sat there, I, get noticed by a couple of Chelsea fans this time. 
and then they all start singing my name and it was the most i don't get embarrassed but that's the closest i get to embarrassing my whole life because the everton fans are thinking you're little you're little yet you were playing for us three months ago now you're sitting up against us and of course from their point of view it would look terrible um but that's the closest i ever get to embarrassment because i think oh god hey, well, at least I have to be honest at least we recognise you this time, Pat. I suppose yeah, exactly. Player of the year, you don't recognise me, but it was only two or three people, and as soon as two or three people did, yeah. it only needs that. Then it's a nudge, then it's a nudge, and then 10 minutes later, there's 5,000 people or whatever singing your name. Going, oh, Brilliant. Brilliant. It kind of sums it up beautifully, really, doesn't it? Um, we're a weird, weird club, and, and I mean, e- even in the modern day, you get players that have come over from all over the world, some of whom have won World Cups, and they all... They, Chelsea gets under their skin. It's bizarre. I mean... To kind of wrap it up, I mean, you know, what what what's your you know abiding kind of feeling about your your five years at Chelsea? Um, Hard question, I know. No, it's so much fun. I I was so happy. I always say the same thing. I try to say the same thing. Try to remember to say it. I want to say thank you to the Chelsea fans, Um, because I have many Chelsea fans have said to me, "Oh, thanks, it's great that you've done the little thing." I say, no, no, you don't get it. I came down as a kid from Scotland. You gave me such unbelievable backing. You never, ever told me. You stuck by me through good times and bad times. You sang my name and you understood what I was trying to do. Um, When I left, you still stuck by me and were kind. And if I meet a Chelsea fan, I am always happy to meet a Chelsea fan. I ended up getting a, a lifetime career out of football playing it and then covering it for writing and television and radio. None of that would have happened. Nothing would have happened without the Chelsea fans behind me in those early days. Because I'd have just thought, God, this isn't for me and left. Um, So for everyone who says, oh, thanks, Pat, thanks, Pat, I think you really got it wrong, badly wrong. (laughs) It's me that has to thank you for everything you've given me. Um, And I do hope that comes apart across and how I feel about the club and what I, how, how I always talk about the club and also what I say in the book about the club. Because um, that's, that's not a BS line. That's how I see it. Well, Pat, I can assure you the feeling is totally mutual if, if you can accept that from me. Um, you know, we, we, we still love you now and we loved you hugely then. And it really does come through in the book. And I, I think, I know you call it the accidental footballer, but I think you could call it a happy accident, if you like. <laughs> But it was for me. It was definitely for me. And I'd, I've had a great time doing it. And I'll be honest, I kind of sort of always felt I should have been a writer. It's taken me a long time, hasn't it? <laughs> I finally get around to it. <laughs> and I had, no, it's not true. I've been a writer for years and years. I've, I've written, I've had columns for the, the, the Telegraph. I've had columns for the Sunday Times. I had a column for six years in Scotland for the Mail. I write everything myself, obviously. I've, I've written over 600 columns for the Chelsea website. That's all, that's that's about nearly 700,000 words. Yeah. That's about seven books yeah. worth I've written for the Chelsea website. So don't go back looking into the old archives. You, you'll lose your life in it. It's not worth it. So I've been a writer, but I'm really happy I've got this out because, and this is my first moment of losing it slightly by saying, and I never sell myself, I'm actually really pleased with this. 
Yeah. I, I can't believe I'm actually saying it. I'm actually really happy with it. And I don't think I've ever said that about anything I've ever done in my life. So I just hope people can, if they do get to read it, um, enjoy it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure they will. And, and you should be very proud of yourself because it's a cracking book. It really is. I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading it almost as much as I have enjoyed uh, talking to you today. And uh, well done. It's an hour and 50 minutes in and we said an hour. So I'm wow. terrible. And we both we did this on the trust the other week, didn't yeah. we? I know it's, it's we like to talk, don't we? That's for sure. Weird one, by the way. I'm doing the one tonight uh, uh, later. It's uh, later. And um it's a book club thing, and they've given an hour to it, and I'm thinking, yeah, we make it past the prologue. <laughs> yeah. As you said there to the start, we like to talk. Yeah, and so, I've cut, I cut most of the questions out. Yeah, good luck with the edit. <laughs> <laughs> there, I promise you there won't be, be much of an edit, but I have to say, Pat, once again, uh, huge, huge thank you, and, and good luck with the book, and, and hopefully we get to see you down the bridge sometime soon. Yeah, and two things. Thank God we've got Champions League football. And uh, I don't know when this is going to go out, but... Tomorrow. I'm going to Porto. <gasps> For the Beeb? No. Just Chelsea TV. Chelsea TV. I'm seriously happy. I'll be doing stuff for the Beeb while I'm there. But I only found this out the other day. And uh, I'm so happy because I missed, I missed Munich. So I hope that I'm there to see the second well, let's hope you're a good luck charm. I'm sure, sure you will be. But Pat, as I said, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time as always. What a fantastic interview and what a brilliant person Pat Nevin is. And as I said to him, I wish him all the luck in the world with his book. Uh, please go out and buy it. Uh, it. You'll love it. It's a brilliant, brilliant read as you would expect. Now, uh, we have one copy uh, to give away as a competition prize. So if you would like to win a copy of Pat's book, The Accidental Footballer, then you need to answer this question, which will be very, very simple, whether you have read the book or not. Uh, who, which club, which club did Chelsea buy Pat Nevin from uh, in 1983? Uh, if you know the answer to that, then email chelseafancast at gmail.com. Uh, give me the answer. Uh, and uh, we will pick it because probably a lot of people will get them right so we'll pick out a winner and then we will send the book to you in the post so just to repeat the question which football club did Chelsea sign Pat Nevin from in 1983 good luck everybody <laughs> <laughs>